The book's a very existential book because your essence depends on the decisions you make, what you're worth, what you are, your values are reflected in these decisions and that constitutes what, what you are, that's your essence. Your choices matter, so why not use science to make them? That's the idea behind a new book from economist Robert Michael. Michael is the founding dean of Harris and the Elikeem Hastings Moore Distinguished Service Professor Emeritus. And his new book, out this fall, is called The Five Life Decisions, How Economic Principles and 18 Million Millennials Can Guide Your Thinking. Decades ago, Michael helped create the National Longitudinal Survey of Youth, a huge study that represents those 18 million millennials in the title. And his new book uses insights from that survey to give advice on how to find a partner, how to select a job, whether or not to go to college, and much more. But is there anything wrong with using data and economics to make choices about, say, your love life? And why did Michael see a need for this book in the first place? As I came near the end of my career, having taught economics for nearly five decades, it concerns me how few people, few adults, have had courses in economics or understand it well enough to use it in their lives. Some have taken, you know, anyone in the Harris School knows it quite well. On the other hand, you can know something and be able to pass a test on it, know its definition, know a couple of applications, but not know it well enough to use it in your daily life. And an awfully lot of the teaching we do at all levels, high school, college, advanced, focus on the societal uses of these concepts, not the private uses of them. Right. So this is a book that focuses on the private, individual uh, application of some of those same powerful tools that are used by firms and governments. But here, uh, directed toward individuals, and in particular relatively young adults, as they're making some of the life decisions that will have impact over the rest of their life. And where did the idea for this book come from? Well, it, the frustration in thinking that these are really important ideas, useful in making decisions, and an awfully lot of people don't know them or don't understand them well enough to make any use of them. So as I came to the end of the regular teaching four courses every year, uh, the opportunity to have the time to write down how these same tools, concepts might be used by young individuals was very motivating. The data set you use is the National Longitudinal Study of Youth and for those who aren't familiar with it, I guess we should back up. The idea of a longitudinal study being a study that's conducted year to year to track the same group of folks, right? Why is this data set useful in this context? Oh, there's a good question for me. Thanks. <laughs> um, I had the privilege of running the study. I was the principal investigator and the project director for many years, so I know the data well. I admire it tremendously and the work that NORC did in producing it and the consistent support of it by the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the government in yearly funding, going out and identifying these people up front and then going every year to uh, visit with them for an hour or so for a face-to-face -face interview wherever they were. Very expensive, very valuable, yeah. and enormously uh, important. It's a great national resource. Its intention is to track young people before they enter the world of work, as they prepare for and enter the world of work, and then as they go through their careers. And the intention, the aspiration is to continue to track them right up to retirement. But the world of work involves family and migration, education, having children, 
uh, partnerships, so all a lot of things in addition to simply what kind of a job did you have, have, what was your wage rate, how many hours did you work, were you unemployed. So that's what the data set is all about and the kind of use I have here is an ancillary, very secondary to the primary purpose of the NLS. So you obviously had a robust data set. Did you consult with um, young people in the in the writing of this book? Yeah, we, uh, I wrote the first draft of the book without much consultation. Then I hired a dozen or so undergraduate level men and women, uh, some of whom had had some economics, but on purpose, many of whom had no economics to see what they thought of it, and then hired them to read it and give me a reaction, and they improved many things about it. Then I rewrote it, and then I uh, hired a couple of our Harris School graduate students to kind of help me with it yet again, and hopefully each of those steps improved it a bit. And what kind of feedback did you get from from the undergrads in particular? Well, everything from, gee, this is really interesting and valuable and thank you very much. You didn't mean what you said there. You used a term that would embarrass you if you knew what you said and what you mean to say is this, not that, like hooking up. I I had never heard of hooking up at the time I uh, wrote this book and (laughs) talked about it in a way that wasn't exactly what I meant. So the five decisions you end up looking at are deciding to go to college or to continue school more generally, deciding on a career, deciding on a partner, uh, parenting, and health decisions. Obviously, the longitudinal study has just an incredible wealth of data. How did you, how did you narrow down to these five decisions? And I've had fun with this. The title of the book is The Five Life Decisions, which one might think a bit arrogant. These are they. On the other hand, uh, and it wasn't my suggested title. That came from the press. And when they gave it to me, my first reaction was, oh, no, no, that's far too too strong. But then I started thinking and talking with people about, well, what would be the sixth or the seventh or the eighth topic? We didn't get much consensus on those. And then I started thinking, well, okay, let's go the other way. What if we dropped one? Which one would we drop? And, well, none of these five seemed worthy of being dropped. So I'm quite comfortable with these five and can't think of one that's quite as salient as these. As you've mentioned, a lot of these ideas aren't, aren't certainly new to people who have taken economics courses. Opportunity cost, human capital, externalities, what have you. But again, what's interesting here is the idea of applying this to your own life as a young person. Um, is, there, is there a particular area that you think will lead people or you hope will lead people to think about their decisions differently? Well, let me take that question a little differently and make this point. Any student from the Harris School is going to know every concept in this book or I'll be really disappointed in our teaching. But you take something like complementarity and production. Mm-hmm. And if you stop a Harris student on the street and say, give me an application of that, they're going to start talking about its application uh, in the workplace and how it influences productivity and how the amount of product we have is enhanced by the degree to which firms are capable of taking advantage of complementarity. And that's absolutely true. But it's just as true in choosing your partner, okay? And to think about whether I want a partner that's a good substitute for me in the tasks in which, well, have to be done. Somebody has to balance a checkbook. Somebody has to rewire the kitchen. Somebody has to be the social secretary, okay? 
Some of those I like doing, some of those I don't. And it would be handy to have as a partner somebody that did the ones I don't, ah, a good substitute for me. On the other hand, maybe what I want as a partner is a good compliment. And a compliment, as any good Harris School student can tell you, is someone who, when they put their time in, makes your time more productive. And if their input increases your productivity, that's a compliment. And that's what's important if you're thinking about oh, applying your religious principles to your life, to decisions about how much you want to save and invest for your old age as opposed to spend right now in kind of a complementarity of strategy, especially so when it comes to children and how you're going to raise those children and how many you're going to have. There you want a complement, not a substitute, as a partner. And to take that idea that all Harris School students know and mostly would apply to something in the workplace and apply it to their life is what this book attempts to help them do. And that's true for everything. Uh, comparative advantage. If you ask somebody about comparative advantage, they're going to tell you about the fact that trade between countries is greatest when the two countries are most different because of the comparative advantage. To, and, oh, the gains from trade are greatest that way. Adam Smith. Yeah, yeah, we all know that one. Okay? But it's just as true when you're choosing an occupation, okay, that you take advantage of the comparative advantage that you have over someone else. And the fact that somebody else is better at the thing you're choosing to do is irrelevant if you're, com if you're relatively better at it than he or she. Okay? So it's not the absolute amount that matters. It's the relative. And the application of that to your life is very different than knowing it well enough to apply it in an international trade context but not in your own life. And this idea of applying it to your own life being being tricky, and you know, especially with these things that we love to think about in the abstract. Um, obviously, you've been an economist for a long time, so these have been on your mind for a long time. But I suppose these decisions are now in your rearview mirror. In the process of writing the book, have you had to revisit anything and say, "Huh, I wonder if I, you know, could have applied this framework a little differently in my own life." Oh, my, that's a hard question. Uh, let me answer that this way. Several of my friends or folks about my age that have uh, read my book in the last two or three or four weeks have been dropping me notes telling me they've read it, and that happily at least those that write me tell me they enjoyed it. But they often are telling me, gee, I, I wish I'd understood that aspect of economic thinking back when I was making that decision. And I cringed the other night when I thought about <laughs> one of these applications that uh, usually they don't tell me what those are. But right. the, the book focuses on these five life decisions at the early end of life, but it certainly is the case that one continues to make life decisions and big decisions about one's life, all one's life. That is the decision to retire. I have two or three friends right now a little younger than me that are facing retirement or taking up retirement right now, and they see that as one of these big life decisions for them, as indeed it is. So we have scarcity. That's what causes us to have to make these decisions and face these choices. We have them all our life, right up to the very end. And so the same principles apply among the elderly or among young people. Mm -hmm. One interesting theme that I definitely noticed throughout the book is the sort of balance between determinism and choice. The idea that we can look at longitudinal survey data and discern a lot of really interesting and important insights about what one's parents' backgrounds make them more or less likely to do. And I think we have a sense of this, you know, if, you're, if your parents 
go to college or don't. That'll have some kind of influence on your own choice to do that, for instance. But I noticed that you kind of make a point to remind us that, yes, these things correlate this way, but causality is very complicated. And do you, I mean, is that... Yeah, Jake, you're addressing one of the challenges in writing a book like this, that there are real complexities out there that need to be addressed. One of those complexities has to do with the issue of family background, that I look at several elements of the family background of these millennials, their father and mother's level of schooling, the age at which the mother first gave birth, whether the millennial grew up in an intact family or not, whether the income was high or low, the wealth, the poverty, and boy, those things matter. And every one of these choices, when I look at that as a factor influencing the choice about education, occupation, partnering, children, and health, it shows up as a big deal. Now, one can look at that and say, well, then, I guess I don't have much choice. Right. Okay, it's pretty well set for me. But no, the subtlety comes in in recognizing that, yes, those things matter a lot. And, oh, by the way, since they matter a lot, the decisions you make are going to influence your children down the road 30, 40 years, too. Okay, so ooh, there's another reason why these big life decisions are challenging, that it, it not only matters and has consequence for you, it will for your loved ones later. But go back. The fact that your parents had these influences on you, and they are strong, they are profound, doesn't mean it's set, doesn't mean you don't have a choice. I looked at a, a set of four risk factors. Dad dropped out of high school, Mom gave birth to the millennial or an older sib before age 18. Millennial grew up in a one adult family and in poverty. All four of those risk factors. Now, there weren't that many millennials that fit all four of those, but some, 5% of them have a BA degree by age 25. Hmm. Okay? So somehow they overcame it. So yes, family background matters tremendously, but no, it isn't destiny on either side of that. You could look at those whose dad had a PhD, grew up in a happy, intact family, and everything's going well, and they're not doing so well, some. But it's only statistical. You still have an awfully lot of choice. You can move the dial. And that brings up, in my judgment, the single most important of the economic concepts here, and it's one that we don't emphasize enough, and that is sovereignty. When we talk about sovereignty, again, we talk about it in the societal way of, oh, consumer sovereignty. I take my cash and I go in the marketplace and I buy a Chevrolet or I buy a BMW, okay? And my sovereignty is expressed with my cash, my, my ability to buy. That's my sovereignty. But turn that around and take that home with you and think about the sovereignty there. The decisions you make about these life choices, these and all, uh, re reflect your values your preferences, they reflect your capabilities and capacities, and they reflect the opportunities you confront. And the choices you make, you have to live with. Your mom doesn't have to live with them. Your lover doesn't have to live with them. Your priest surely doesn't have to live with them. So though all those folks can give you good advice, and they may love you and care about you and attempt to be a good agent for your principle, they don't have to live with the consequences. You do. That gives you sovereignty. You have the authority and the right to make the decision. And then, back to that family background discussion we were just having, it matters. And so though, yep, we're not all in the same place exactly when we start out, 
you can overcome hardship and you can fall short of the potential that you might have depending on the choices you make. In that sense, the book's a very existential book because your essence depends on the decisions you make, what you're worth, what you are, your values are reflected in these decisions and that constitutes what, what you are, that's your essence. Insofar as the choices we make become sort of the person that we are, do you think we should have any qualms about using economic frameworks to make these decisions? I haven't thought about that much, but I'm really glad you asked because no, I don't. And here's why. The economic framework does not restrict you, limit you. It, it's a kind of a, well, an odd way of talking about some of these things. The thing I've worked on for 20 years is uh, sexual behavior. And you start talking about sexual behavior from the point of view of economics and you get into this complementarity and substitutability and it sounds really goofy. But the fact is, those are just tools, okay? They help you understand what it is you're deciding and what matters to you. So when you talk about children as an investment, or you even talk about investing in human capital in yourself, it can sound crass, it can sound materialistic, it can sound uncaring, it can sound just really not humane, but that's not the point and that has nothing to do with it. They're simply tools, they're concepts. And so using the concepts to make better decisions, I'm sure, is a good thing. It's, it's been working quite well since Adam Smith. It's, it works well in governmental decisions, it works well in corporate decisions, and it can work quite effectively within the family decision-making. And the weirdness of the terms don't either restrict or limit the choices, the decisions you're making, nor uh, get in the way of expressing yourself. They simply are tools. They're a language. And so I have no qualms at all about their application, their use, and I think the world would be a better place, and each of us would have a happier life if we used them a little bit more. Me too. <laughs> Your book uses the data in an interesting way. It, it presents pretty simple, straightforward tables, and it carefully walks the reader through them and seems to really want to make sure that we don't infer too much and don't infer the wrong things. But I couldn't help but think about it in a broader sense. You know, you, you seem to be drawing a distinction implicitly between having data and using it wisely. Uh, there's a lot of data. A student can go to the internet and get the an amazing amount of information and knowing which piece of data, which fact is worth citing and using and relying on is where training at the Harris School comes in to learn what can and can't be relied upon and used. But the fact that there are a lot of data out there, a lot of facts out there, doesn't mean it's all that valuable. The kind of data we have in the NLS, and let me talk about the NLS just a minute, is we defined a population, and the population was a well-defined set of people. They were everybody born in a five-year period, 1980, 81, 82, 83, 84, that spoke either English Spanish, because we did the interview on those two. So from that, we sent 90,000 addresses into the field to look for them. And we surveyed, and we got 94% of those addresses to tell us who lived there and whether there was anybody in that age range that were born in those five years that lived there. That's the way you, we drew the sample. Then we got 92% of all of those we identified to sit down and talk to us. Now, we know how many people in the 18 million, every member of the sample, represents. 
that way. We can take their answers and multiply them up and project what then the whole 18 million are doing. But then we had committees and committees and committees designing the survey instrument, asking how much detail do we want about uh, the wages they get? Do you get over time? Do you, is that including the tax or without the tax? What happens to the fringe benefits? All kind of detail that we had to structure. Now, given that we had questions we wanted to know the answers to, that helped us design the instrument that helped us then collect the data to then answer the question. So these are powerful data to answer a set of questions that we started with. Now that's very different than going to Amazon and finding out how many people bought five books last month and how many people bought uh, colored books or big books or whatever. That kind of a mass of just raw, unstructured data. So I'm a user of, a believer in, purposive, structured, high-quality, scientifically sampled surveys of known populations. I think an awfully lot of the data that is out there is not very useful because it doesn't meet those high standards. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Radio Harris, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Just search for Radio Harris. Today's episode was produced by me, Jake Smith.